0: If you enjoyed the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So, please take a look at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. So, back for another Tornado Tales and this time with F3 legend Roy McIntyre. So, Roy, I think you have a story to share with our viewers.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, thanks for inviting me back on to aq uh, Interview. My- Tornado Tale comes from January 2000. Um, I was on Treble One Squadron at the time, and it was my first deployment to Saudi Arabia um, as part of the force that was policing the no-fly zone over southern Iraq, um, as mandated by the United Nations. The RAF called it Operation Bolton, and this was my first goal. Now, we were based at Al-Khaj, which is a the main base in Saudi Arabia, which we used throughout the Iraq uh, uh, campaign all the way through to the uh, the Gulf War II. About an hour's flying time from the Iraq uh, Ur- and Saudi border. And that's where the tanker was. Um, so it was a long transit up, about an hour to refuel. Now, we were first, at, as I say, our first deployment with the M- 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 NAV. And on our first trip, we were just going up as one of the as a reserve aircraft because they're quite long vol times, mm. um, three four hours and things can go wrong. So usually the spare aircraft was held on the tanker and just sort of sat on the sidelines while the game was on. Um, so that was us on the first day. Second day we actually went up and had an avionics problem, so we turned back to Al cash. Um, so this was our third go, and we were really. Up for this, the first time we we're actually going to go into badlands, and um, we were in the we were number two of the pair. And the idea is you go up to the tanker, refuel, everything okay. You then push into the uh, southern Iraq airspace on time, with coordinated with everyone else, and basically our job was to patrol a certain part of the airspace. Now. The UN United Nations mandate was there was to be no Iraqi aircraft airborne, and we were there to stop them doing it for this particular period of time in the 24-hour cycle. What we couldn't do anything about, and of course the Iraqis knew this, was any ground forces and particular surface-to-air missiles. So that they were a definite threat to us. Hopefully, and it, as it turned out, our intel people had quite a good handle on where the Iraqi surface-to-air missiles were, what types they were, and more importantly, the doctrinal firing ranges that they would employ them. So based on that, hopefully good information, we could draw circles, um, missile engagement zones, on our tactical display and work out where the units were and a circle to stay outside of, and we should be all right. Now, it's a kind of balance between getting the job done managing the risk of not going too close to these things, but also not being shepherded away into one sort of little corner by all these Iraqi surface-to-air missiles, where we're supposed to be there policing the airspace. So it's a balance. Now, once we go into the area, what we do is is kind of meander around as a loose pair, um, not being too predictable that so the Iraqi ground forces couldn't work out. We're definitely heading this way. We might have a chance of a shot, um, but equally covering the whole area to show that we have a presence and that we are kind of dominating the airspace. So that was the, the, the philosophy behind it. And if all things been equal, we just were in there, we go back to the tanker, we go back in for the and cover the whole of the, uh, the allocated mission time, which could be three or four hours um, and then at the end of it we would withdraw and head back to Al Qash, all the time being ready to react if an Iraqi aircraft got airborne and start looked like it was going to come into the the, the no fly zone, because then it would be we would have rules of engagement which would have allowed us to engage it. So, all in all, we were getting ready for the game. So, up to the tanker, refuel, everything's looking good. We come off the tanker and we push north into Iraq. Now, I don't know if it was um, as a result of the first Gulf War or if it had always been like this, but it's quite easy from the air to see the Saudi-Iraq border. Oh, wow. Because there's a great big sand berm, as they called it. Basically, a big... Sand wall that was built. Now, as I say, it might have been there beforehand, but it was certainly reinforced as a result of the first Gulf War. So, 20,000 feet as we push north, you could actually see quite clearly a line. We are now stepping into the Badlands. Mm-hmm. And myself and the Nav are thinking, Right, here we go, we're in. Mm-hmm. So, we move up. Uh, we're watching the RHWR, we're watching our. Toad radar decoy control uh, panel, because that will give us indications. as well. Are there anything looking at us? Obviously looking out and coordinating with uh, my We've got a uh, data link so we can see each other. We're also getting the E3 picture, etc. So we're off and running. We're only going about five minutes or so, and we're doing various little turns and what have you, and when all of a sudden there is a flash over my head and I went, what the fuck was that? And I react <laughs> by rolling the aircraft hard right, pulling round and put chaff out as a first. And I'm now looking for any sign of a smoke trail because I saw nothing at all. Uh-huh. And I'm looking down, can't see anything. I, I roll back left, I see them, and i did you see something? Did you see what was that? What was that? And I'm pulling round again to see if there's something on the left. Um, and the reply I got was, oops, sorry. <laughs> so I roll the wings level, and I mean what do you mean by oops sorry and it turns out my nav was taking a photograph with his camera and he forgot to inhibit his flash <sighs> okay okay at which point my leader's looking across at me and he radios up like, are you okay are you alright because he's watching our move into some sort of breakdance routine for no apparent reason I went yeah yeah, we just settled down, right, let's get our energy back again. Okay, right, we won't do that again, will we? No, we learned about crew cooperation from that. Wow. The rest of the mission was fine. And several hours after that, we went back to tanker refueled and then we had our one hour back to Al And it was quite funny when we got back to the crew room and talked about it. But just for that moment, I thought, oh, referee, not now, not immediately. I've only just started. <laughs> but there we go.
0: And when you landed, uh, did you speak to your nav and say, like, what were you doing, or was it kind of just like, oh, OK. I we had a
1: chance go. to talk about it in the air, and yeah. he knew immediately what was wrong, you know. Right. He sh- one, he should have told me, and two, he should have made sure the flash wasn't, because it was broad daylight. You didn't need the flash. Um, but if he'd even just told me he was about to do it, problem would have been solved. Um, it's wow. just that uh, you know, not telling me and of course we're all keyed up thinking and I get a flash I think what's going on <laughs> but these things happen it? and as we went through the detachment it got easier and easier because we just work better because we're always crewed together, we're always flying together and that pays dividends when you, you, know, when you work as a team that, that vote. actually perverse, conversely the comms level goes down as you get better because you know what you're doing but, as I say, this was the uh, first time for both of us. We were a bit sort of, oh, here we go.
0: So, there we are. And uh, well, on these sorties, were you probably tanked up as well? Like, did you have the big jugs on?
1: Uh, no, 1,500 litres uh, tanks, not the not the 2250s. when the 1,500 liters. Why? It's a compromise, again, between performance and endurance. Uh, yeah, the big jugs would go on would allow us to not go to the tanker for so often or stay on task for longer. But the manoeuvrability with them is such that would almost if things started to get hot, either with surface-to-air missiles or Iraqi aircraft, we would we would jettison them straight away. Mm-hmm. The compromise with the 15, was the 1500s um, higher G limits when they're full. But we couldn't go so fast and that wasn't really the factor it was the g limits um but as well as giving us some fuel so 1500 liters and then of course we had the trd on board on the outboard pylon mm-hmm. we had a chaff dispenser on the other outboard pylon to balance um and then chaffing players and of course the full missile load
0: mm-hmm. and it was hot yeah exactly yeah and was it normal to take up a camera on these sorties was it allowed or was it kind of like sneak it in kind of, you know sneak it in um you know in the cockpit
1: pretty pretty much i mean there was no there was no security problem in terms of taking photographs out of the cockpit if you start taking photographs of the, of the displays the tactical display is not so bad the radar most certainly not um the main problem was what what you're doing with the camera it would have to be a small camera that fits in your pocket you don't want it rattling around the cockpit particularly in the front i mean i, I have done it um and i had a, a small compact that i could keep in my pocket and take some photographs but generally speaking in those sorties i never bought never bothered because i was so busy if it was kind of calm and quiet for a period then the navigator would would do it yeah quite often um no, it was not really a problem as long as you didn't take pictures of the radar in particular inside
0: so yeah like when you landed um if you if they knew you t- uh, took a camera but they're like i want to see the pictures before they go anywhere there was nothing like that no no not at all Okay,
1: uh, it was only really if we thought we had captured something of interest we might offer it to our squad intelligence officer to have a look at but there was no uh there was no auditing there was no um, checking that everything was fine, etc., etc., and there was quite a collection of of uh, images built up amongst the, the squadron as went through these detachments. Most of them of an aircraft spotting type of uh, nature, because there's quite a variety of aircraft, both the Alkash and. Meeting on the tanker, it was quite interesting because there a lot of US Navy aircraft coming up and good particularly if we used one of the American tankers. Um, we could, you know, have a Prowler, we could have Tomcats, we could have Hornets, we could have a B. There was a B 1 one time that wow. was there, just happened to be the way it was all scheduled. um Quite often, you'd see just British aircraft coming through obviously the Eagles and the F 16s, um and then on the ground, with all the big stuff. So generally speaking it was it was quite good from that side of things but it was all very much a shall i say aircraft enthusiast magazine spotters type level that we we had just for our own our own uh, um, memories etc as well as the guys sitting around the squadron etc cetera, etc cetera.
0: and when you were on that detachment or that sortie were you in squadron what squadron were you actually with and was the squadron like, markings on the jet
1: um I was with Treble 1 and in fact, all of my uh, sorties during this period, so not discounting Gulf War One, but the run-up, so 2000 onwards up to Gulf War Two in 2003, all with treble one. The aircraft had no markings because they stayed out there um, and we rotated through about, uh, was it every two months? Or every three, four, it might have been every four months the squadrons rotated through, and we just and we left the aircraft and equipment there. And so the aircrew, ground crew went home at that stage, and then the new squadron came out and took over. Um, the only markings that did appear, uh, and it was actually one of our navigators on Treble One that instigated it, was he started to put names on the wheel door of mm. World War One and World War Two aces. Wow. So like Paul, etc. etc. And... Uh, I can't remember all the other ones, but he put um, a curtain that he used and the number of kills that they got. Um, so they appeared on those field doors. The ground crew did some funny cartoon type images on the side of the cockpit of some of them like Desperate Dan and stuff like that, a la Americans in World War II. Um And I think that was, I don't know if, if, if it was Tribal One ground crew or whichever, but they stayed on for the duration. Uh, the aircraft just had uh, two-letter tail codes uh, to identify them, and that was it. Um, so it became sort of a, a, a fleet rather than a particular squadron type thing.
0: And obviously, our view is, now you're um, uh, forty-three through and through. Uh, is it, you, if you cut you in half, you're black and white. What was it like go, uh, flying with a uh, uh, triple one?
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, across the runway with the uh, yeah. on the dark side, as we used to say. Um, it was exactly the same as I, I described it once, like a, a, a Rangers supporter playing for Celtic or a Liverpool supporter playing for Everton. You know, Manchester United, Manchester City, there's a whole load of, um, of pairs you can pick. Uh, no, nah, it was... By that stage, we, uh, we were much more unified than we were back in the phantom days. Um, and there was a lot more cross-runway posting. Um, and while I always wanted to get back to 43... Um, no, I enjoyed my time on Treble One. It's, it's. Um, I think it's the same as any football player. You change your tune as soon as you join the new club. This is the best club ever. Never mind what I said.
0: Before this yeah, whatever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But secretly, yeah.
0: What did they but- get back. What a brilliant story Roy so thank you for sharing that but uh, our viewers will notice you're in a different office at the moment and you're also, uh, you've gone a different way, you're into trains at the moment, can you like just tell us about
1: that? Well first and foremost we have relocated for family reasons from uh, Scotland down to uh, Norfolk. Uh, so I'm only about eight miles away from Marham and the S35s uh, and, of course, Lake Heath, just a bit further south. Um, so, yeah, that's our, our new locale at the moment. Uh, and um, as part of this relocation, I was always interested. I've always been interested in railways. My father and my brother have uh, been lifelong railwaymen. And I have now got involved with the Mid-Norfolk uh, Railway, which is a heritage line that runs between Dereham and Wyndham and i have qualified as a signalman which is great fun
0: getting nice.
1: in the single box pulling levers and watching trains go past um <laughs> it's the ultimate trade set so that's uh, that's what i'm doing as well uh, at the moment
0: yeah, it seems there's quite a, quite a crossover there between aviation and, uh, um, you know, train railway enthusiasts. Uh, I think uh, there's a guy called, I think it's Ian Black's brother, isn't it? Um, he, do, he does all the, the pencil drawings or the drawings uh, of the trains. Stu Black. Stu Black, Stu, yeah.
1: Ian, Ian's brother, Stu, Stu Black, yes, he does. Uh, it's very similar to the uh, Squadron Prince you've got behind you. And I know that Squadron Prince and Stu Black in the past have had... Well, shall we say discussions about uh, copyright and what it's what, etc. But I mean, he does the aircraft as well as trains, yes, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's quite a train enthusiast as well. I think he lives up in, in Northumberland at the moment. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, brilliant stuff. And one last question for me because I enjoy patches. I, I can see it like in the back uh, on your be your right side. What are the patches in the frames there, Roy? Right,
1: these are my. Um, thousand one thousand hours two thousand hours three thousand hours, four thousand hours wow. tornado patches nice. um i've got them mounted and underneath is where i actually achieved the hours and the date wow and actually all four are in different places I got thousand hours was uh, i can't remember the exact date so i think it was 91 at coningsby uh two thousand hours was while i was on the oeu and that actually happened out at Nellis air force base when we were on a trial wow 3,000 hours was with Treble One, and that happened down in the Falklands, and that could be another tornado tale for the future. <laughs> I just have to hang my head a wee bit, but that's one for the future, if you just tuck that one away. Oh, definitely. And 4,000 hours was actually at Lookers on Treble One, and that was about 2006, I think it was. So, yeah, I've got them mounted up there, And and the other obvious thing on just over my other shoulder, the big... I don't know if I've ever talked about it in the past, but there's an obvious, there's a, some sort of suit framed in a, on the wall. And that belonged to uh, Sir Chris Hoy, um, the cyclist. It was his racing suit from the 2002 Manchester Commonwealth Games when he got gold, won three golds for, uh, for Scotland. Why have I got it? Well, shortly after that, he came to Lucas to publicise the Open Day. It was a 2003 Open Day. Um, and I flew him in a jet, and uh, it was all the publicity side of things. And as a thank you, he gave me that suit, which I never wore, but I got it framed to put it up. So. Absolutely um, amazing. So that, uh, and obviously went on to greater and greater things after that. And um,
0: one last question before we wrap up this tornado tills here, Roy. Um, obviously you're working with, uh, you know, doing the signals with the railway. D- do you ever talk about your flying career? Do people are interested, like, where your background was or do you, and, and yeah, vice yes, versa, do you ask them? Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, they are. And, in fact, the um, we have the, the senior signaler is called the signalling inspector. Every line has one. Uh, and he's basically the man that <clears throat> checks you out qualifies you have to go on a single box and then periodically checks you just much like the squadron QFI or CFS as we used to have um, anyway this chat, particular chap is a civilian flying instructor, he flies out of South End and uh, he's he actually ex-police but he did civil flying Um, so he was extremely interested to talk about <laughs> flying the other guys like it but when the two of us get together and obviously start talking flying all the time um, not again
0: Here we go. <laughs> absolutely well brilliant roy well thank you very much for coming on uh, this episode of tornado tales and yeah we're wishing you luck on the railways mate right. no
1: bother thank you very much for having me cheers